This is The Rounds Table. Hey there, Rounds Table listeners. Welcome back to another great show this week. We are joined by Dr. Paxton Back, a familiar face on the table, uh, and he has a quite an interesting article, I would say, so stay tuned. Dr. Back, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks, Kieran. It's great to be back as always. Let's get to it. Paxson, can you introduce the article for this week? Sure, Kieran. I'm talking about an article which is hot off the press. It just came out a couple of days ago, and this is the Orbita trial. The full name of this paper is Percutaneous Coronary Intervention in Stable Angina, a Double-Blind Randomized Control Trial. Okay. What is the bottom line for this trial? So this is a trial done by Rasha Alami et al. out of the Imperial College of London in the United Kingdom, looking at percutaneous coronary intervention for stable angina. And the bottom line in this trial is that in a trial of 200 patients with stable symptomatic coronary artery disease, there was no benefit to PCI over placebo in a randomized control trial. Well, well that may change the way we think about things, may confirm what we already know. Tell us the evolution of this, uh, how we came to, to do the Orbita trial, Paxson. Okay, so um, that's a great question, Kieran. And as you know, this the PCI has kind of followed an arc over the last 10 years, and this really kind of ties up some really important questions. This is addressing one of the deceptively easing sounding questions in cardiology, and that is, who do we stent? We know that PCI has been around for 40 years now. It was, it was it's the 40-year anniversary. And we know that it's an incredible tool of, for dealing with coronary artery disease, but we continue to learn more about when to use it and, and more importantly, when not to. So one of the, one of the major trials that, that, that we still talk about often today is, is the COURAGE trial, which was a landmark trial that came out exactly 10 years ago, uh, telling us that PCI for stable coronary artery disease, disease didn't have any outcomes on mortality, which depending on who you ask, was, was sort of a landmark trial 10 years ago and, and somewhat controversial. But one of the other outcomes from that trial was that this was okay because we were going to continue using it in stable angina because it provided symptomatic relief, and that's important. Yeah, so that makes sense. So really we're talking about a symptom benefit-driven question here, and that seems to make sense to me. Yeah, and then from that, we tried to get a little bit more nuanced again in choosing who we're going to stent and who we're not going to stent. And if you can recall that one of the other big trials addressing this question was FAME2, which came out five years ago, and that was looking at a new tool to help try and tease out patients that might benefit from stenting. That was looking at uh, fractional flow reserve or or FFR testing, which is a technique for actually assessing the functional uh, flow limitation of a lesion. So in that trial, FFR-guided PCI was shown to be beneficial in reducing uh, reducing a composite outcome, but uh, the the largely it was, this was driven by a reduction in urgent revascularization for stable coronary artery disease patients. Okay, I've looked to the stars, I've seen the moons of time, and now I'm ready to orbit the sun. Tell us the design of this study, Paxton. So the reason that this that what this trial adds on top of what we know already is that those previous trials I talked about were unblinded. In other words, both the doctors and the patients themselves knew who was getting stented and who wasn't. So that leads us to the Orbita trial, which is a double-blind randomized controlled trial addressing a similar question. So this was a trial that, again, took place in England uh, at multiple sites throughout England, uh, recruited patients between 2013 to 2017, and they randomized patients uh, with stable coronary artery disease to either getting a PCI and stenting of their lesion versus a placebo procedure where they actually did go in, they performed a cath, they wired them, and then they just sat them on the table for 15 minutes with headphones on uh, and didn't perform any actual uh, stenting. Wow, that is an incredible sham procedure, which really enhances the uh, design of this trial, but I can only imagine it took a lot to get through ethics approval. 
Tell me, Paxton, who are the patients then that they're including in this trial to really assess whether they get a symptomatic benefit from PCI? Sure, Karen, and, and I agree. I'm, I'm really impressed at the at the design of this trial and really surprised that they managed to get, to get this through uh, their ethics board. But there is that equipoise there, so so they managed to make an argument and they got the go ahead. So the patients in the study, as I mentioned, they enrolled 200 patients. The inclusion criteria were pretty basic. They were just you between 18 to 85 years old, having angina and having a clinically significant lesion of greater than 70% in a single vessel. They excluded patient who had multivessel disease, who were actually having an MI, who had previous cabbage, left main disease, other significant um, comorbidities like severe valvular disease or, or CHF. But they tried to isolate out that patient with symptoms, presumably due to a, a single uh, stenotic lesion. Okay, uh, Paxton. So it sounds like we have a fairly similar inclusion and exclusion criteria to Courage and Fame too, if I'm not mistaken. You've told us sort of what the intervention is. Can you elaborate on it for us a bit? Sure. So I'll, I'll go into the to the interventions just a little bit more for clarity because because there was sort of multiple steps involved in this trial. So what they did following enrollment for these patients was go through multiple phases. There's sort of three phases to the trial. So the first phase prior to the actual PCI itself was a six-week uh, optimization of medications. So this was a, a six-week kind of lead-in um, where they did fairly aggressive titration of their medications, including um, optimal anti-inginal therapy as well as dual antiplatelet therapy. This involved multiple phone calls per week with their physician, um, recurrent measurements of blood pressure. It was, it was quite an aggressive titration of all their home meds. Following that that up titration prior to their PCI itself, they put some patients into the hospital for fairly extensive testing of both um, functional testing, subjective testing for their angina score, as well as objective tests of their uh, cardiac function. So this included angina questionnaires, cardiopulmonary exercise testing, WVN stress echoes, quality of life assessments, etc. So getting a lot of measurements. They then randomized them to stenting versus no stenting, performed a procedure, and then six weeks out from the actual stenting itself, they returned to the lab to again go through all of these similar uh, tests to compare uh, their pre and post cath scores. So the primary outcome was, was specifically a difference in exercise time increment between the two groups at six weeks out, but their secondary outcomes included everything from uh, peak oxygen uptake, angina scores, physical limitations, Duke treadmill stores, change in echo scores, um, pretty, pretty extensive uh, series of tests. So what do you th- make of that primary outcome? Do you think that's a fair assessment to look at exercise capacity following this as the important measure? Or do you think they could have picked a different measure that would have been more reflective or clinically important for us? I mean, I guess I'm not quite sure why they chose this one specifically versus, but but I think it, it, it is it is a very clinically relevant score. It's it's their, their, their exercise tolerance, essentially. So I think it has meaning to us and meaning to patients. They could have just as easily done at the angina score, I suppose, although this is slightly more uh, objective and, and easier to kind of uh, to show a difference in. Yeah, I, I think I think you got it on the on the nail of the, the head of the nail there. I think that there's a lot of subjectivity and uh, variability between self-reported uh, scores in this case an angina score and I think using a bit more of an objective measure like an exercise is meaningful both in what you can tell patients they're able, able to do and also in the you know validity of measurement overall it's a bit is a bit cleaner. So Paxton, I think I have a good clear picture now of what they've done in this really sophisticated and I think impressive study design. Tell us what the results were. 
As I mentioned, Karen, this is a totally fascinating study, and I think you've, we've outlined it uh, nicely there. To give you a snapshot of the patients then they rolled, again, um, pretty uh, common patient to URI, I think, 65-year-old uh, males, BMIs in the high 20s. Most of them did have hypertension and, and, and hyperlipidemia, but fairly normal cardiac function. CCS angina scores between two and three, and primarily LAD lesions. 70% of the patients had a single lesion to the, to the LAD with fairly significant FFR scores. So their FFR scores on average were 0.69, uh, indicating a, a flow-limiting lesion, and a lesion that based on those previous trials we talked about, like FAME2, would qualify for stenting. Hmm. Okay, and uh, tell us a little bit more about the primary outcome then. So these patients, they all ended up on fairly optimal anti-anginal therapy on, on averaging three three anti-anginal medications as well as dual antiplatelet. And then when it came down to it and they repeated all this testing six weeks after the procedure, there was no difference in cardiopulmonary testing noticed. Wow. All that effort for no result when it comes to PCI, although you might say that all that effort was worth it because perhaps that's exactly why they found no difference. Yeah, yeah. So they uh, they looked extensively at all the other secondary outcomes. Uh, again, no change in, in any of them except for the debutamine stress echo peak wall motion score. That was the only outcome that they looked at where there was any significant difference between the groups. So overall, a pretty significant impact from, from, from medication alone when you consider um, its uh, ability to, to compare to PCI. Yeah, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that, that reiterates what we found from Courage, uh, that optimal medical therapy appears to be equally as efficacious as uh, interventional strategies for angina, correct? Uh, that's just it, yeah. So this really, really does, uh, some people say maybe it puts the final nail in the coffin for PCI for stable angina. Um, again, in Courage, we knew that it didn't change mortality, but we did think that improved symptoms. And this is really highlighting the importance of these double-blinded trials because both Courage and Fame seem to suggest that there still was benefit in these symptomatic patients or in these stable patients uh, if they were chosen appropriately, and this really is casting doubt on whether whether any of them really do need um, need this intervention. Wow. I wonder if we, we just seem to be more and more entering the age of peeling back all the stuff that we've built up over the last several years that we've done to people, and now we're more and more saying, you know, less actually maybe more these days. Paxton, anything interesting you wanted to point out from this trial? Yeah, I mean, this has caused a lot of waves, I think, um, uh, as as Courage did and as Fame2 did as well, because we stent a lot of people. Um, I think in general, we know that the trend out there has been to send less and less people with stable coronary artery disease for PCI. I think that that's sort of percolating down, although it has taken some time. But some people are suggesting, as I mentioned, that this, this is really putting that question to bed. And if you look at the editorials that are written around this, there's lots of different takes on it. Almost everyone has really applauded the study design. It's a heck of an undertaking to try and go through something like this, so it's pretty impressive. There are some limitations to the study that will continue to come up, and that is that it's still a quite a small study size. It's only 200 patients. It was a fairly short follow-up, so so in terms of those immediate outcomes, they didn't show much benefit, but we, we, we don't really know based on, on this study what the long-term outcomes would look like. And probably most importantly is the relative stability of the patients that were enrolled. These are single vessel disease patients with fairly stable symptoms. So, you know, we still, in that person with significant multi-vessel disease and multiple flow limiting lesions, you know, we really don't know whether maybe they would still benefit from, from stenting. But two things that come out of this is, again, it adds even more weight to the idea that, that PCI doesn't fix everything. And 
uh, one of the lines I think that came up in the discussion of this paper that I really liked was that this study highlights the necessity for placebo-controlled trials, uh, which have been rediscovered several times in cardiology, typically to considerable surprise. Yeah, I think that's an important point. Uh, but uh, as we sort of pointed out to begin with, in order to do a really, truly, properly done placebo-controlled trial in this case, they had to undertake a sham control with the associated risks of uh, angiography. And so I can only imagine that was a challenge to get through. But look at the results. We have a really good, solid answer to a question that's uh, still been lingering, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really makes us take a, take a second look at that, that, those fame results. All right, take it home for us, Paxton. What do you want the listeners to walk away with from the Orbita trial? Oh, so the bottom line here is, is to me, is patients with stable coronary artery disease really think twice about sending them for angiography and for PCI uh, until at the very minimum they're on maximal medical therapy. I, I think that this really, really highlights what a lot of us have started to do more and more of, but um, it will give me a lot more reassurance when I'm when I'm keeping those patients in my practice and just updating the medications instead of referring them on to cardiology. Yeah, no, fantastic. I, I completely agree. This this teaches me to really be aggressive and, and maximize all of their anti-anginal medications before I even think about moving them along for consideration of cath. Again, keeping in mind the, the, the patient we're talking about here. Um, all right, let's move on, Paxton. Thank you for bringing that to us. That's exciting. I will definitely continue to make waves. There'll be lots of discussion. So this week, I decided to talk about an article that was published in JAMA in October of 2017. The trial is called the INPRESS trial, and it's looking at perioperative blood pressure management. The first author is Emmanuel Fouchier, and so I thought this would be an interesting perioperative uh, study to bring to the table this week. Interesting choice, Kieran. Um, so tell us, what's the, what's the bottom line to this article? Well, Paxton, this is a randomized clinical trial involving 292 patients. Most of these individuals underwent abdominal surgery, um, and it showed that an individualized management strategy of targeting a systolic blood pressure within 10% of the patient's normal resting value compared to standard practice resulted in significantly lower rates of postoperative organ dysfunction and an overall number needed to treat of only seven. Wow, so that's a pretty impressive and uh, important result. Um, I, I can't help but wonder what made you as, a, as an internist and not an anesthesiologist choose this article, Kieran. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of overlap, Paxton, between anesthesia and internal medicine, and often we work very closely together in the perioperative management of patients. And I certainly am somewhat frustrated or feel useless, uh, you know, in writing the typical line, uh, avoid hypoxia and hypotension uh, to my colleagues, which kind of sounds like a stupid thing to say, to be perfectly honest. But uh, here is a trial that came along that can actually give us something to sink our teeth into and really give some detailed and guided instructions uh, on our for our colleagues uh, on blood pressure management uh, perioperatively. Secondly, it's rare that we see such a major perioperative study get published in such high-impact journals. So, you know, this is, uh, this is an important thing to talk about. Yeah, I mean, with an NNT of, of, of seven, that's potentially a game changer. Um, so tell me, let's, let's get into a little bit more. Tell us a little bit more about the study design. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the primary objective was to determine if a strategy of targeting individualized systolic blood pressure would reduce organ dysfunction compared to standard practice. To do this, they did a multi-center randomized control trial in nine French academic and community hospitals between 2012 and 2016. 
Okay. And who are the patients that were enrolled? Fairly typical perioperative patients. So they needed to be greater than or equal to 50 years old. They needed to have surgery that was undergoing uh, general anesthesia um, with an ASA class of two or higher. So they had some comorbidity and some risk. They used a score called the Acute Kidney Injury Risk Index, uh, which has a scale of one to five, which is just a way to standardize somebody's baseline risk of developing acute kidney injury. Higher the score you had, the higher risk you were. So they, they really wanted to sort of just be able to I, I understand what individuals uh, risk were by using this score <clears throat> in an objective way. Uh, you were excluded if you had severe uncontrolled hypertension. So that's, you know, typically if your systolic is over 180 and your diastolic is over 110, um, I wouldn't send somebody for surgery who had baseline values of that anyways. If you had chronic kidney disease with a GFR less than 30, or if you had decompensated heart failure or acute coronary syndrome at the time, which in an elective procedure, I wouldn't send somebody for surgery with that anyways. All right. So that sounds like a patient that reflects pretty much everybody that I see in, in, in the perioperative uh, setting. That's interesting. I've never heard of that acute kidney injury score before, so maybe that's something that I'll, I'll look more closely at. Um, tell us uh, about the actual intervention itself then. So what they did was they took the patient's baseline blood pressure measurement from the preoperative anesthesia consult as the reference value. If that wasn't available for whatever reason, if they didn't have a pre-op consult, then they did it at the preoperative or sort of preoperative waiting areas, blood pressure as the reference value. And then you were assigned to two groups with uh, the intervention that lasted until four hours uh, after the post-operative uh, period. So if you were in the standard group, you received intravenous ephedrine uh, in six milligram boluses for a maximum uh, dose of 60 milligrams. If your systolic blood pressure fell below 80 millimeters of mercury or 40% from the patient's reference baseline value, that would sort of be what we would typically do intraoperatively uh, in current practice. The intervention arm was the individualized blood pressure strategy, wherein your systolic blood pressure was targeted to remain within plus minus 10% of the reference value using a continuous infusion of norepinephrine, where you could simply turn it up or down to keep them within that range. Now, both groups received lactated ringers infusion um, and boluses according to the standardized algorithm that was used, that's used to, in typical uh, perioperative settings. So there's nothing fancy about that. Just give fluid if needed, essentially. Um, but they did it in a standardized way, so there's no differences. Um, and then you were allowed to receive norepinephrine in the standard blood pressure group as a rescue therapy um, if after you were giving uh, ephedrine and you reached a maximum dose, your systolic blood pressure remained low, then obviously you needed to, to be safely uh, resuscitated with norepinephrine as they would probably do anyways in, in the operating room. Okay, cool. So just let just to make make sure I understand this. So they compare one group that they just kept their systolic over eighty baseline just throughout the throughout the OR versus another group where they actually tried to target an approximation of what their baseline systolic blood pressure is walking around day to day. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, and uh, then tell us a little bit about the actual outcomes that they measured. So the primary outcome is kind of interesting. They used a composite of the Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, so SIRS, uh, which is a clinical uh, you know, criteria made up of blood pressure and heart rate and things like that. Um, and then they use also, in addition to that, one extra um, evidence of organ system dysfunction. 
And those organs that they specifically looked at were renal, so like, you know, your creatinine, uh, respiratory complications, cardiac complications, neurologic complications, and coagulopathy complications. Now, each one of those has several little permutations within each, and so there's not time on this podcast to go through what each of those means specifically, but just to say that those are the organs they're looking at as primary targets of uh, organ dysfunction perioperatively. And they measured this until day seven after surgery. Okay. And so were there any uh, important secondary outcomes on top of that? Well, in addition to that, they looked at each individual organ dysfunction uh, as a separate outcome. Um, They also looked at this group of complications they called post-operative complications. That included sepsis, uh, which is common post-operatively, as well as other types of respiratory, neurologic, cardiac, or surgical complications like wound, you know, dehiscence and wound site infections. They also included uh, intensive care unit and hospital length of stay, as well as all-cause mortality at 30 days as their main important outcomes. And uh, just so you know, you know, things were done uh, above board. Uh, All of the outcomes were blinded, and the physicians who looked after them post-operatively were also blinded to their uh, allocation arm. Okay, that's super interesting. Um, So tell us then about the, the results. Yeah, so a little baseline info about the individuals they included. Just under 1,500 patients were screened for eligibility, uh, and ultimately they enrolled 298 patients in the trial that were randomized. Most of those patients who were excluded were not high enough risk. They were very low-risk surgery or a very, very short surgery, so they're, they're not really going to be at risk for developing organ dysfunction in the first place. Now, there's an important point. 82% of the patients had pre-existing hypertension, so we're really looking at a hypertensive cohort here. Uh, and about 60% of patients in each arm had stopped their hypertensive medications prior to surgery. Um, you know, we would basically stop most antihypertensives except for beta blockers these days uh, preoperatively. <clears throat> Blood pressures throughout surgery um, were slightly higher in the individualized uh, arm. That's the, They were 123 millimeters of mercury versus 116 in the standard arm. That's partially by design in the way that they were managing blood pressure intraoperatively. Um, and both groups got the same amount of intravenous IV fluids, so there wasn't any difference there. So so their blood pressures throughout the surgery, the, the, the average that they met was actually pretty comparable between the two groups. Yeah, fairly, fairly similar, about a 7 millimeter uh, of mercury dif- difference between the two, but not hugely different. Okay, but, and pre- but presumably there was a wider uh, variation in blood pressures in, among the, the treatment group, considering that they were trying to do this targeted strategy? Yeah, well, interesting you should ask that. The blood pressures are only measured every 10 minutes intraoperatively. Um, and one of the criticisms that, and that the authors actually bring to themselves um, is that there is a possibility of large swings, uh, even only very transient swings uh, for up to a couple of minutes, I suppose, that may not be actually captured on the measurement um, and outcome in this trial. Uh, but it's certainly possible that in either arm you could have these potentially large swings of blood pressure. To your point about variability around them, uh, as far as the ones that they've actually measured intraoperatively between the two groups, there wasn't any major differences that we can see um, uh, from point to point. But, you know, there is a little bit of difference overall. Probably the standardized group has a little bit more variability uh, than the individual group, actually. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, and what about their outcomes then? Well, so here's the point, and it's actually fairly striking. Um, 38 versus 52% uh, in the individualized versus standard. Uh, 
uh, experienced the primary composite outcome of SIRS and one uh, and evidence of one organ dysfunction by seven days. So um, that's a 14% absolute risk reduction if you are targeting an individualized blood pressure within 10% of the baseline systolic blood pressure. That corresponds to your number needed to treat of seven. Um, where do those injuries come from? Well, there's a 16% absolute risk reduction in renal injury. That's 32 versus 49% in the individualized group versus standard. And a 10% absolute risk reduction in neurological injury, primarily manifested as decreased level of consciousness. Those rates are 5 versus 15% in individual versus standardized uh, blood pressure group. In the other organs they looked at, there was no differences between groups there. Now, by 30 days... Um, they, they, when they're looking at their secondary outcomes, um, there was an 11% absolute risk reduction in sepsis postoperatively. So the individualized group had 15% rate of sepsis versus 26% in the standardized blood pressure group. But overall, this did not really translate into any um, harder outcomes, so to speak, in that there was no difference in length of stay or mortality between the groups. Now, they weren't designed or powered to answer those questions, but that's what they found on their exploratory uh, sub-analyses. Now, that's really interesting. I, I, that, that doesn't seem to quite add up to me. Um, do you have any uh, inclination as to, as to why you see these massive difference in outcome, but no change in terms of uh, hospital stay? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. I think it's an excellent question. Um, and that it's sort of something that I certainly thought about myself. I mean, one possibility is, does it speak to the underlying severity of the injury, right? We don't actually quantify, so to speak, the differences um, uh, in the sort of severity of the organ damages that we see, right? Um, and, uh, and secondly, the other question that kind of raises is, well, how clinically relevant or how clinically important is some evidence of organ dysfunction in the grander scheme of things when it comes to perioperative care. Um, I don't know that I can tell you the answer to that question, but those are sort of two possibilities as to why you see a significant difference in the composite outcome that they're measuring, but not in their secondary outcomes. Of course, the other point is that their secondary outcomes and the trial is empowered to detect differences in those meaningful uh, areas and simply could just be a small sample size problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's really interesting, Kieran. Is there any anything else specific you want to point out about this trial before we uh, get to our big conclusion? Um, I think overall, you know, this is a very complex type of an intervention and trial, even though it sort of sounds simple, so to speak, on the surface. But imagine all of the um, aspects that go into managing perioperative blood pressure and all the differences between patients that could arise. So I think that this trial did a really good job at trying to um, to conduct and answer this question. Um, but ultimately, you know, it, it still raises questions in my mind as to the importance of an abnormal creatinine or slightly decreased level of consciousness postoperatively when we don't see any larger signals uh, in the exploratory hypotheses. Um, I guess the flip side of that is it's it's a very simple intervention that they've proposed, so it's pretty pretty low risk, and it's not changing. Um, it's not making a lot more work for us necessarily. So uh, quite interesting. So wrap it up for us and just tell us then your your conclusions from this trial and whether this is going to change the way you practice. Well, I think it definitely will. Um, and as I sort of mentioned in the introduction, I no longer have to dumbly write, you know, avoid hypotension to my colleagues, I can at least give some guidance around targeting blood pressure control intraoperatively. 
That being said, I think you know it's important to keep in mind who this study applies to. Really, I think we're talking about individuals with pre-existing hypertension who are undergoing abdominal surgery. We're not sure about the benefit of this kind of a strategy to lower risk individuals um, and other surgical procedures that don't pose the same risk of our organ damage, especially acute kidney injury as abdominal surgery does. But nevertheless, I think personalizing your patient's perioperative blood pressure management within 10% of their preoperative baseline level should be a strategy that we can apply in these individuals. Um, what medicines you should use to do it, I think that may or may not be of significance and I think anesthesiologists will uh, will have a better um, a handle on what medications to use but I think it's an important finding that's quite interesting and I, I, I can't wait to see some follow-up in this uh, in other settings because you know when I look at this and I think of, of working in the ICU where we just blindly put a map of 65 for everyone and whether whether these kind of uh, this kind of setup might be translatable to other settings. Yeah, I, I hope it is. And, and, you know, part of the biologic plausibility for that question is that, you know, when you have pre-existing hypertension, the autoregulatory capacity of the brain and kidneys are impaired. So whether it's intraoperatively or potentially uh, in the ICU, uh, we may have to be targeting different blood pressures for different types of individuals for sure. Oh, it's really interesting paper, Kieran. All right, Paxton, well, let's move on to my favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we're reading about. Paxton, what's catching your eye in the news this week? So I was uh, reading an article actually in The Guardian. It was from a couple of months ago, but somehow slipped by me. But I noticed it this week. Uh, and it was an interesting article about uh, vaccines. But not your traditional vaccine. So this isn't this isn't discussing the idea of a vaccine for an infectious disease, but actually a vaccine for heroin addiction. Uh, so this is an idea that that's been around for for over a decade. The idea of whether we can whether we could actually devise a, a vaccine to help treat substance use disorders, be that heroin use disorder or or uh, or stimulant use disorders, um, but hasn't had a lot of luck so far in in in, in early trials. Um, but it's something that continues to be on people's brains and um this seems like there is sort of a, a a recent push to 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 try to try this again in some human trials so i was reading this this article which sort of summarized kind of where we've come from in terms of uh, this idea of 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 alternative treatments to, to for for substance use disorders and really some of the hope that there is out there that we might be able to to, to devise uh, a treatment other than you know well Frankly, we don't have a lot of good treatments out there to begin with. So thinking outside of the box uh, as to how we might um, come up with other ways to, 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 quote, get at the heart of drug addiction. Wow. Yeah, I think we, yeah, and thinking outside the box approach may be needed because I'm not sure how effective we are these days, as you said, in treating lots of addiction. Uh, well, thanks for that, uh, Paxton. My good stuff uh, is entirely different. Uh, but um, have you ever picked up a f box of any kind of food um, that says natural flavors, all natural flavors on it. Did you ever wonder what does that mean and are natural flavors any healthier to the common alternative and mysterious ingredient artificial flavor? I wonder all the time when I look at food products what they mean by with the word natural. What 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 is natural? Yeah, so excellent question. What is natural flavor? So if something is a natural flavor, it's derived from some natural source. The FDA defines that as oils, resins, or other extracts derived from natural sources like plants, meat, or seafood. However, 
even though natural flavor must come from natural sources, it doesn't actually need to all the parts of it come from the plant or meat whose flavoring is being mimicked. So for example, orange flavor might not contain only orange extract, but maybe extracts from bark and grass to give it an orange flavor or an all-natural orange flavor overall. Now contrast that to artificial flavors. Those are made by creating the same chemicals that make up those flavors naturally, uh, except you're doing it in a synthetic process. And I thought this article was interesting because ingredients extracted from nature aren't necessarily safer than something that's artificially made, nor are they potentially more environmentally friendly. Ultimately, I think the lesson about natural versus artificial flavor is if you like something and it gives you the flavoring you want, you should buy that. Don't buy it because it says natural versus artificial flavor. Buy it because you like it. It sounds like that's a, a, a bit of an arbitrary designation. Mm-hmm. The way you can wordsmith things to sound delicious, I suppose. Anyways, that was a delicious uh, episode this week, uh, Paxton. Thank you for being on the show with us, and we look forward to having you back sometime soon. Oh, it's my pleasure, Kieran. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Roundstable, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us.